Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I'm honored to have Brian Clayton with me. Brian is the founder of GreenPal, and I'm super excited for you to hear his story about starting a business and growing and expanding it, selling a business, and then starting another. Thanks so much, everyone. I hope you enjoy Brian's story. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I am honored to have Brian Clayton with me. Brian is the CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, and he's had other businesses. So we're going to hear about the entrepreneurial journey, but I'm excited to talk about this one. And one of Brian's mottos, and I think this is going to speak to his business acumen, is nail it and then scale it. So I think there's a focus on, you know, becoming really good before you get, you know, too much momentum and topple over. So Brian, thanks so much for being on today. Thanks for having me on, Phil. Great to be here. You bet. So I want to start with a, a, a defining moment for you. You're sitting in your room, you're playing Nintendo like many kids do, and your dad comes in and says, hey, this, this isn't going to keep going on. So talk a little bit about what happened and what transpired from that conversation. Yeah, boy, that's not, not the truth. Like uh, life boils down to moments that mean it all, and, and weeks and years that mean little. And and uh, that was definitely a moment in my life. I, I was playing uh, Super Mario Kart on a hot hot summer day, like most kids in the mid '90s. And my dad came in my room and said, "Hey, get off your butt. Uh, you got a gig to do. You're, you're going to go mow the neighbor's grass." And uh, we weren't living in a democratic household, so this was pretty much a, a direct order. And uh, I begrudgingly uh, went along with him and we mowed the neighbor's yard and uh, I got paid 20 bucks to, to do that. And I thought, this is incredible. Uh, you mean to tell me I could have been doing this all along. I can just go uh, work for an hour and make $20, which in the mid 90s was insane. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I, I remember after that, I was just hooked. Uh, yeah, sure. It was hard work and I got grass all over me and I smelled like gasoline. But I, uh, the first thing I did was I started passing out flyers all over the neighborhood. I, I went on my little old school desktop computer and, and made with clip art and, you know, all the latest technology back then made like a bunch of flyers. And, and I, by the end of that first summer, I had maybe 10 or 15 customers and, and I, I was off and going and, and I never looked back. I always just had my own business and I stuck with that little lawn mowing business all through high school and then put myself through college mowing grass. And when I graduated college, I had to make a decision. Was I going to go into the job market and take a pay cut or stick with this grass cutting business I had? And I, and I didn't really want to be a lawn guy my whole life, but I thought, hey, why not? Let's see, you know, maybe this is my, my lane in life. You know, I, I saw business ownership as kind of like my lane. And, uh, and, and I just made a little business plan and over a 15 year period of time, built it into one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, where I live and, uh, and then sold it in 2013. So grew that business just for me and a push mower to me and 150 people. I got it over eight figures a year in revenue and I sold it and I was able to retire at the age of 32. Yeah. So I, I want to rewind a little bit to some of those early days in the lawn mowing business, because, you know, I think there's so many people or kids, you know, growing up that that is a job that they have. And to your point, you kind of get to that spot where it's like, well, it's awkwardly too big for me to just do it. Um, but it's probably not big enough to be like 
hiring, you know, full-time adults to come on board of my business. So for you, how did you scale originally? Was it asking a couple buddies, Hey, I'll, you know, I'll pay you $15 and charge 20. So I still make some, or how did you scale in the early years? Yeah, you're right. It's the greatest business in the world for, to do small. It's a really awesome side hustle. And, and, uh, and, and, and it's the greatest business in the world to put an extra thousand dollars in your pocket uh, every week. Um, it is a challenging business to scale and do big because you, you have a lot of, you have a lot of gravity that's constantly, you know, dragging you down uh, and every service business is this way. And so high competition, low barriers to entry. Uh, it's very asset intensive. You, you have to buy expensive pieces of equipment to perform the service. Uh, there's like all kinds of cost drivers like fuel and things that are constantly going up and, and then, uh, and then, and then customers aren't usually willing to pay a premium. So it, it, it's challenging business. So for me, um, I think like in the early days, I just had a chip on my shoulder. I just really just for some reason thought that this was the thing that I could do to, to create something of myself. And I thought it was the thing that I could do to like excel and achieve in life. And that's really how I saw it. And so for many, many years, like, and still to this day, 20 years later, my business is me. I am my business. So, so I'm always like just looking at my personal life and, and how I'm, how I'm architecting my personal life and my personal expenses and in my, how it impacts my business. So I know if I can live on like two grand a month, that means there's more money in the business to reinvest in the business. And that's how I ran that company. And so for, for many years, it was, uh, it was like, I didn't pay myself this rice and beans and I would, do everything I could do to save up money to buy another truck or buy another lawnmower or, and I didn't, so I didn't make any money for like six years. Um, and, and so, but I, I I had a plan. I was working to, to acquire the assets, acquire the people, acquire, uh, to, to, to fulfill out and build out the system for operations, for sys, for, for sales, for customer service, for all these things. And I was just little by little working this plan. And it was, uh, it was a long-term vision to, to kind of get from just me and a push mower mowing residential properties to me sending out, you know, what ultimately became 90 trucks out every day, you know, taking care of properties like apartment complexes, office complexes, airports, things like that. So there was about a five-year transition where I really just kind of had to work that plan and, and have faith and and stay disciplined about it and uh, you know it worked out so i'm glad i was able to do it a business like you mentioned it is something where it's a lot based on who is brian right and what's the business that you're running so talk a little bit about you know being a person of your word acting in integrity you know doing what you said you're going to do because at the end of the day who brian is also directly impacts the business and vice versa right what the business is directly is impactful to who, who brian is yeah, it's one of the cool things about running a company, running a business, founding a business is that um, it's going to cause you as a human being to level up. It's going to cause you to acquire skills and knowledge and wisdom and soft skills and EQ and things like that, that you never would have. And so, you know, you're going to have to become a decent manager. You're going to have to become a decent leader and kind of know the difference between the two. And you're going to have to uh, set the standard for the business. You're going to have to set the standard of quality, a standard of excellence, stand, what the culture is. And um, in, the, in the vein of that kind of question, it hit me like a ton of bricks one day. Uh, I was driving to the office and I, it was probably year eight or nine. And I really didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go into my own business that day. And I, and I got to a point where 
just a lot of the people that worked there were negative people mm. and I was pissed off all the time. And we were always, we were always like up against really stiff competition and it was always really tense and it was just a really tense environment and a, not a fun place to be. And, yeah. and, and, uh, I, I thought to myself, I don't know why this hit me, but I thought to myself, well, you created this, mm. you built this, you hired every one of these people or at least approved of them. Um, so this is a reflection of you. Yeah. And, and so like as a founder, as a, as a CEO, as a company owner, you get exactly the culture you deserve, uh, at all times. Yeah. And it usually is a reflection of who you are personally, usually, mm -hmm. uh, small businesses like the founder and then scaffolding built out around the founder. And so like the founder is just like inflection point. And, uh, and, and sets the stage, sets the tone, sets the standards, sets the vibe. And, and I had to really go through a personal development phase of, you know, I can, I can really just decide, I can really choose what kind of culture I want here. I can really choose uh, what the vibe is. I, and, and, I, and I can make that decision or I can do the weak thing and, and just, just suffer it and make it miserable for everybody else. So it, it was a long growing period for me, but, uh, but that was a realization I came to that you get exactly the culture you deserve as the founder. That's good. So, I mean, just kind of piggybacking off that, you know, you're growing, like you said, you end up getting to 150 employees. I mean, that's just tough to, you know, cultivate a culture, or if you realize, Hey, there's a problem with the culture to just radically change it, uh, in, in a quick time frame because you've already built it so large. So, were there things that you ended up doing to adjust the culture, whether that was, hey, I recognize that these people are not the right you know, fit for the job and that we just need to part ways or, hey, here are some things we're going to do from a team building standpoint. Talk a little bit about, you know, maybe having that realization and what you did about culture thereafter. Yeah, it, you know, it's a real simple way to put it is, is we implemented a no assholes policy. You know, <laughs> if somebody was just straight up a jerk to customers or to coworkers. Or just, I mean, we, we fired them. I mean, we had yep. to, um, and, and that helped uh, quite a bit. And, and so that, you know, just that cutting out that cancer can, can remarkably, uh, improve, um, uh, the vibe of, of the workplace. The other thing uh, I, I watched, uh, this presentation about how the Navy SEALs, um, select, uh, uh, coworkers, how they select recruits and they have kind of a two by two, quadrant and and on on one axis is is talent and on the other axis is trust mm. and and they they look for a combination of the two and so on the lower left hand quartile is low talent low trust of course you don't want those people and then on the upper right hand is high talent high trust and of course that's who you want but that's almost impossible to find and then so then but so then you're constantly having to make this 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 trade off between okay, this person is super talented. Maybe mm. they can kill, kill somebody with their, with their bare hands with a, with a blindfold on, but they're not very trustworthy. Well, yeah. they, don't, they don't ever consider that person. They're really looking for the person who, who is more or less all maxed out on the trust quadrant and has just enough talent mm. because they can teach them the talent. Right. And so, and so you know, in a, using the Navy SEALs as an extreme version of, of the, the, of the ex, of the standard of excellence of recruitment, that's kind of how, how we, how we look to rebuild it from the inside out was like, if, if we didn't trust the person and we didn't genuinely like them, 
then then we we let that uh, we let we let that be a deciding driving factor in terms of you know I would I would I wouldn't suffer these people no matter how talented a salesperson they are no matter how talented a, a technician they were and using that as kind of a guiding light over over two or three years we were able to rebuild the culture from the inside out but it took a long time because Absolutely. because you can't undo you know five ten years of mistakes in, in a month it takes time yep. That's good. So I want you to also highlight a little bit about, you know, what having a job early on did for your work ethic. Uh, you know, for me, I, I like a lot of kids, I had a newspaper route growing up. So that meant, hey, you're up at 5 a.m. Sunday through Saturday, so you can go get it. Rain, snow, hot as heck. You got to get out and get people their newspaper. And that instilled a work ethic in me. But talk a little bit about that for you, you know, starting your business as young as you did. And then you know, being really the driving force of the business. Yeah, I think I think one of the best things you can do as a, uh, is for your children or even as a as a young person yourself is is to work a shitty job. Work, you know, like I, I, there's a there's a venture capitalist that that will not invest uh, that I, who who I follow and read all of his stuff. He says he will not invest in somebody unless they've worked a crappy job. Like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they graduated from MIT or, you know, just graduated from Stanford and, you know, they have all of this, 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 these other positive signals. If they haven't worked as like a, a, a server at Applebee's or something, he will not hire them. Not, not, not fund them. And so I think, I think that one thing working a crappy job or starting a crappy business in your early years can teach you is, is like the superpower of, of just discipline and the superpower of consistency. And as, as like simple as those things are, a lot of people don't have consistency. A lot of people don't have discipline, you know, what it means to show up day in, day out over a long period of time, whether you want to or not. Yeah. As, as simple as that sounds like that's, that's one of my superpowers in, in both of my businesses is just, it's just grinding out the, the hard stuff and, and, and doing it over a long period of time and working towards a goal. These are just simple concepts that I think you learn at a young age, if you work a crappy job or, or start a tough business. That's perfect. I love that. So you mentioned it earlier, you grow it to a great size, one of the largest in Tennessee. And so then <clears throat> across the country, there's some bigger uh, businesses and they recognize that and they say, well, gosh, maybe we'd like to, um, acquire you. So talk a little bit about the acquisition of it, but then also you talk about how maybe I wasn't meant to retire at 32 years old. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I wish it was as easy as like somebody was knocking on my door and said, Hey, can we buy this landscaping business? But that's not how it happened. I, I, uh, made the personal decision that it was time to pursue an exit from the company for one reason, I, I you know, I, I mentioned earlier when you're starting a, a business, running a business, you're evolving as a brand new person every three or four or five years. You're you're getting skills around leadership, you're getting skills around management, you're maybe you're picking up skills around sales or or team building, and and that's one of the funnest things about it. I had reached like a plateau uh, in mm -hmm. that in that in that kind of growth pattern, I guess you could say. Like I I I topped out almost. And it was bugging me. It was bugging me for like a year or two. And I thought, well, maybe I can sell this business and, and move on and do something else. And uh, boy, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know like how hard it was to sell a business. And, and I started, the first thing I did right, I did a lot of things wrong, but the first thing I did right was I, I, I started working with this broker who, who focused just on my industry. Like he had spent 20, 30 years 
selling businesses in my industry. And he knew kind of what we needed to look like from the inside out. He knew what the numbers needed to look like and, and what the systems and processes. And so I started to rebuild the business yeah. from the, from the, from the inside out. And it took like two years, but, but executed on a plan and, and, uh, and then, and then we were able to take it out and, and get it sold over a two or three year period of time. Ideally you work a proactive like exit strategy that's five or 10 years, but I didn't do that. And I didn't really know what I didn't know. And, yep. uh, but I was able to get it done and, and the people that bought it did, did a good job. And, uh, but it was a challenging thing. One of the most challenging things I've ever done. Yeah. So like you said, Hey, after I sell this thing, now I've got enough money where financially, you know, I potentially don't ever have to work again. I can, if I want to. And for a little while, I'm sure that sounded good because I'm sure it took a lot of time, effort, you know, sacrifice to build the business to what it did. But after doing that for a little bit, you're like, all right. I got to get back and do something. Yeah, it is exactly how it unfolded. I, I had, I was able to, uh, take away enough money and invest it to where I didn't have to work anymore, which was nice and, and live a comfortable lifestyle. Uh, but I got bored really quick. I, I remember I was like sitting on a, on a beach in Costa Rica for like two weeks and I remember the only problem I had faced in, in like two weeks was that the bar ran out of my favorite uh, type of tequila. And uh, I was like, oh, whoa, you know, <laughs> can't I, have it. yeah, <laughs> I've got more. There's more things in life that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, set up to, to, to solve. And so and uh, so I thought, man, you know, maybe I need to get back into something. Maybe I don't want to do what I just did because that was really hard but maybe I need to get back into something, not, not quite that intense, but something. And yeah. I thought, well, well, I'll just start a software business. Cause those are easy. I thought, you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to have to deal with 150 <laughs> trucks every day. And, you know, guys that, that, that are, you know, machismo who, uh, who, who, who run lawnmowers all day. Like, I don't want to do that. Cause that was really hard. I'm going to start a simple, easy business, a software business. And boy, I didn't know what I didn't know. But I had the idea and I thought, hey, let's do this. So I thought, I thought, you know, an app needs to exist for the, what I just spent the last 15 years doing. You know, it's, and somebody should be able to push a button and order a lawn mowing service. And it, this was like 2013, 14, when, when Uber and Lyft were taking off and Airbnb was taking off. And, and so these, these, these kind of mobile-based apps were solving real-world problems that were occurring in, uh, in people's lives. And I thought, you know... Uh, I can build an app where people can order a lawn mowing service and, yep. and it'll be so simple. We'll just build it and it'll only take a couple of years and we'll just be off and going. And I recruited uh, two co-founders, started working on it. We paid a dev shop to build the first version of what we thought Green Pal should be and uh, spent like 150 grand doing that, launched it and it was a total just flop like crickets. Um, we hustled up like a hundred people to use, use the thing by passing out flyers and, uh, and realized real quick, this is a lot harder than we ever imagined it ever could be. Um, everything from how do you design the product? How do you like invent a new product from scratch? Like to the technology execution, to getting vendors to care about it, to use it, to solving the quality issues of the vendor doing a good job to, to recruiting homeowners to use like it was just so yeah. many like paradigms of difficulty um like dimensions of difficulty that 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 i i didn't anticipate 
And I, th I thought about quitting um, and to say, hey, you know, this is going to be a lot harder. But, but something hit me. I thought, well, um, I already tried the retirement thing. And, and I, so I'm not going back to that. And, I, and I, so I guess from now on, I'm just going to work on my best idea. And this is my best idea. I'm not terribly creative. I don't have any other good ideas. This is all of them. And, and so let's just keep working on this. And we did. And we were validated uh, by talking to our customers, you know, the dozen customers we had, maybe 20. <laughs> and like, they would always tell us where we sucked and they would tell us where we disappointed them and tell us like where, where we needed to improve. But they never told us, I don't want this. Right. They, ne they never told us, I don't need this. Mm -hmm. um, they never told us, you know what, I'm just going to go back to doing it the old way of leaving voicemails and, and like, and, and, and just hoping the guy shows up or, you know, like, cause we, the problem we saw for homeowners is getting quotes, hiring, and then making sure it shows up and happens on a continual basis. And we, we, oh. we, we, we learned that early on and we, and that's how we, we built out the app. So we had to teach ourselves how to write code teach ourselves how to design software, teach ourselves how to market software. And that took a long time, it took like three years, but I'm glad we did it because, um, because again, you know, every four or five years, you know, you, you revolve into a whole new person and, and that's what yeah. green pal has, has done for me. I'm a completely different person today than I was a decade ago. I love that. So I want to highlight a couple of things in there. One was you had two partners. So once again, highlighting who knew in the moment moments, Talk a little bit about those two individuals and maybe how you met them and then why you decided to recruit them to be your partner as opposed to maybe anyone else in your circle. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and going back to the, you know, the Navy SEALs talent trust uh, paradigm and the two by two quadrant, I didn't know that heuristic back then, but instinctively, that's what I optimized for. These were two, yeah. two guys I had known since high school. Okay. And, and I, and I knew that I knew they had two things. They, they, I could trust them. Yeah. Like I could literally trust them with, you know, I don't, I, you don't, I mean, it didn't matter if, if, if they had the password to all of my bank accounts like that, you know, that does not matter. And they do to this day. Um, so there was that. And then the other thing is they, they, like me, they had a chip on their shoulder. They, mm -hmm. they wanted uh, to achieve uh, something better in life. And they had a desire to do whatever it took to get to the next level in life. And so I thought, well, if we have the trust and they have the ambition, we can learn anything else. Yeah. And, and uh, I was kind of underestimating that second piece, but it was true. And we, we, that's, that's how, how we did it. You know, I recruited these two folks and we wouldn't be where we are today. So people always ask me like, okay, so then, so if I'm understanding you correctly, I got to go get some co-founders. And the answer is, not necessarily. Um, you, you, most of the time, bad co-founder dynamics kill more businesses than they help. And, and, yeah. and so you got to look at it like, like a marriage almost, you know, when we marry our, yeah. when we marry our, our soulmate, you know, we, we date for a year or two or three, you know, they meet our parents, you know, we, we, we really think it through and then we get engaged for six months or a year, but we'll found a business with somebody we've known for two weeks. And the reality is, if the business is, is successful, you're going to spend more time 
with this person and you are your actual spouse. And if the business is, you know, most businesses, you're going to go through hell and you're going to go through turmoil. You're going to go through conflict and challenges with this business partner that your spouse won't even understand most, most honestly. And then the other thing is if the business is unsuccessful or successful, it's, it's easier to get a divorce and cleaner than it is to actually unwind a cap table in, in this business. So it's like, it's a much more challenging, more intense, more time intensive, more entangled kind of relationship than an actual marriage. So, so my point is, it's like, don't found a business unless you can imagine not doing the business without the person, like they're your business soulmate. And then, and and then to put it like, like to quantify it. um, If you had $10 million in the bank, would you write that person $10 million to start the business with you? And if the answer is no, then don't start the business. And you say, well, why 10 million? Well, if the business is successful, it may be worth 30 or 40 or 50 million at some point. Their equity is going to be worth $10 million. So would you write them that check today? Well, hell no. Well, then don't start the business with them. Well, so one thing I want to highlight that you said there that I think is really interesting is at no point did you say, oh, well, I hired them because they were really good at this, or I hired them because they're really good at that. Don't get me wrong. That's oftentimes a part of business ownership, but you hired them for two intrinsic things, right? Hey, I can trust them and I've known them a long time. And then second, that they had a chip on their shoulder. They wanted to be successful as well. I think oftentimes to your point, you look at a business partnership and you say, oh, well, that person's really good at that skill. I don't have the trust and I don't know if they care about future growth, but I do know they're good at this skill. And I think oftentimes that's a better hire opposed to a business partner. I agree. Um, Yeah, yeah. Hiring for talent and like technical acumen, like hire for that. You don't necessarily have to marry that person. Um, ideally you get all three. Oh, right. ideally, yeah. you know, I mean, that's, that, that's awesome. And look for that. Um, there's a guy named Paul Graham, who is the, uh, proprietor of this, uh, accelerator called Y Combinator. And these yeah. guys are like behind, you know, tons and tons and tons of huge names, Airbnb, Instacart, DoorDash, list goes on and on. Yeah. And he says, you should get a hacker and a hustler. So, so somebody who is really good at the technical side and somebody who's really good at driving the business forward. So ideally you get one, you get all three, you get, you get trust and, uh, and then maybe you skip both. You get trust and then you get talent. Um, but, but, but trust first is, is, is how I see it. And a lot of times, like in the early days of starting the business, if you have a good co-founder relationship, there's like a benevolence to that other co-founder that gets you through a lot of the hard periods where it's like, you know, I really don't want to go in on a Sunday and do a hundred pitch emails to journalists, but I know I got to, and I, and I know that Steve's going to be there and I don't want to let Steve down. So, so I'm going to go in. And yeah. so a lot of that kind of benevolence will help you get through a lot of the, the low points. But on the other hand, I see a lot of people uh, rush to get a co-founder as like a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I, uh, I, I'm not certain I want to do this. I'm not, I'm a little scared to do it myself, but if somebody else is stupid enough to do it with me, that'll help me. I see yeah. that a lot too. So, so just be honest with yourself about that yeah. um, uh, when you're thinking through these things. That's good. So earlier, you know, you mentioned, hey, so we thought, well, gosh, this will be simple. We'll, we'll hire a dev team. We'll pay them, you know, $150,000, $200,000. They'll develop this thing and we'll be off to the races and end of story. Uh, what happened wasn't that though. And I know you mentioned, I just felt like this was my best idea. So I, even though I had invested that money and it was a dud, uh, I, I want to go back to the drawing board and stick with it. So 
my, my question there is oftentimes when we have something that we would say failed, right, or it didn't go as planned, that is kind of the end of the road for it, right? Opposed to reimagining and saying, all right, is the idea still good? Well, if the idea is still good, let's go back and let's figure this out. So talk a little bit about that for people who, you know, and once again, it doesn't always have to be a business, right? It could be your life, right? You made a decision. It didn't go quite like you thought it would. But the idea behind it was still good. So maybe it's not the end of the road for that thought. Yeah, there's a, there's a methodology uh, called the, the Lean Startup Movement, which you've probably heard of. And, and at the time, we were reading uh, two sets of books that relate to, to this methodology. One is the Lean Startup, and the other one is the Startup Owner's Manual. By, and Lean Startup is by Eric Ries. Startup Owner's Manual is by Steve Blank. And these two books really kind of guide you through the process of, of iterating on top of something that's pretty good and, and, and building something big and great. Hmm. And that's really how we looked at it. I, I knew that if I could get 12 people in one neighborhood in Nashville, Tennessee to use it and keep using it, then I knew I could get a hundred people in Nashville, Tennessee. And I knew if I could get a hundred, I knew I could get a thousand. And I knew if I get a thousand, I get 10,000. And I knew if I can make it work in Nashville, I can make it work in every city in the United States. So, so drawing, like connecting the dots between where you're at and something that is working on a small scale, kind of like an atomic unit, uh, just something very small, but it's working. And then, you know, you can see that if you just, you, you double it, maybe five times, you'll have something, you know, important is how we really looked at it. And, and it's solving all of the problems along the way that our customers were telling us about, you know, all of the places where we sucked, all of the things that they wish it would do better. Um, just, and just listening to that feedback as, as kind of R and D is, is how we kind of went from, you know, really a punch in the stomach to now, you know, we got 300,000 people using it, doing multiple eight figures a year in revenue yeah. a decade later. And so that, that's how we did it. And, and we celebrated the small wins along the way. Like, like one of our first early goals was just a hundred transactions in a week. And it took us like two years to get to there. Yeah. And, and then we were, and then the next goal was a thousand transactions a week. And that took another two years. And then we wanted 10,000 transactions a week. And that took another two years. And so celebrating those, those, those milestones is, is how we manage our personal psychology to get through that time. That's really good. Well, as you're saying that, it makes me think of uh, a phrase that has been so important and vital to my life, and it's the idea of blissful dissatisfaction. Mm. So kind of describing that is a lot of people fear celebrating a, an accomplishment because I might lose my drive to accomplish the next thing, right? And on the other hand, if you just keep going throughout and accomplishing different things, but you never take time to enjoy it. I mean, you're living a life for, for what, right? I mean, to yeah. just say, hey, I did more transactions. I mean, that, that's not worth it. And so it's kind of finding that balancing act, right? Of, hey, I'm, I'm not satisfied with where I'm at because I don't want to just plateau. And at the same token, I, I hit this goal. I want to celebrate it, but I still want to have energy to go for more. So what were things that you guys did to enjoy those moments, but then say, all right, but we're not satisfied. Like, here's the next thing that we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, one, one, uh, you know, one key kind of like maxim is, is, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos is still day one and it, it always is day one. And, yeah. and you know, I, th- I think he's still, you know, up until recently, he still started every shareholder off that, uh, shareholder letter off that way. And, and so for us, 
that that's just kind of like a personal philosophy that in my yeah. life that 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 you know if you're not gaining ground you're losing ground and and so but on the, at the same breath like we had to celebrate those small victories we really did because we had to know that were we on track were we on yeah you know, if we kept if we kept going down this path would we build something great and we kind of mapped that out and 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 so i remember like some of those key moments were like in the first maybe it was the, the first or second year it was a saturday and like 30 people signed up on a saturday uh and i didn't know who any of them were so this was a big, huge moment because I yeah. thought, wow, because <laughs> up until then, it was a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat, a lot of hustling, a lot of personal networking, but 30 people signed up. and I didn't know one of their names, didn't recognize one of their names. And so I knew, I was like, well, you know, uh, if, if I can get that, if I can get 30, I can get 300, I get 3,000, maybe one day 30,000, who knows? Um, and so, and, and, and that's kind of like how I manage my personal psychology doing it. And so you, you you celebrate it for like 24 hours and then you move on to the next thing I think is, is the key. Like you don't, you don't get like complacent. You, you don't get uh, comfortable, especially in a technology business. Cause you'll get left behind really quick. You celebrate for a day or two and then, and then you realize, okay, well now it's now it's on to the next mountain. Cause if yeah. you don't keep driving forward uh, you'll get left behind. Like that, that's, that's a, that's a George Patton quote. If you're not gaining ground, you're losing ground. And yeah. I think the technology business, most business is that way. If you're not growing, you're dying. Yeah. So you kind of have to like have that in, 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 your, in your kind of psyche and business is full of all of these like conflicting um, kind of viewpoints. It's like, is like, do you have uh, a huge goal or do you do the small things? Right. Well, it's both. It's both. It's like, do you celebrate the small wins uh, or, or do you not give a shit about small wins and just go after the mountaintops? And so yeah. it's like, yeah, it's both. So yeah. it's a lot of uh, conflicting kind of dichotomies you have to like reconcile at the same time. You bet. Now, another thing that you mentioned a couple of times, I think is important to point out is the getting feedback, listening to the feedback, and then changing, you know, those things for your customers. So for me, I, I probably learned that best through sports. And then I realized when I got into business, oh, this is just like when a coach told you, hey, you need to do it this way. And it wasn't because they were berating me or they were telling me I wasn't good. It was just they were letting me know how I could be better, right? And I think for a lot of people, they don't seek feedback because their mentality for it is, oh, I'm not good at this, or we're not good at this, opposed to, hey, this is an opportunity for us to be better. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit about your mentality on feedback and your, your willingness to receive that and then implement it. Yeah, your, your metaphor is really good. I've never heard it put that way. It's like the coach is telling you where you suck. You got to listen to that so you'll improve. I think the problem <laughs> is, is most founders in that, in that situation think of the customers as the fans in the stands. Mm, and yeah. it's just like, uh, that guy's drunk and I'm not going to listen to him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't what, who cares about his opinion anyways. And, and so that's kind of like how they frame yeah. the customer feedback as the fans in the stands. When in fact, the customer feedback is the coach. Because uh, the coach is the one who can kick you off the team. And the coach <laughs> is the one who hired you for that job. And so, yeah. uh, and so, and so, yeah, that's a good analogy. Um, and so for us, you know, going back to lean startup and startup owners manual, that's really a lot of what those books are about is listening to that customer feedback, letting that kind of guide your decisioning and letting that guide how you build the product. And so it's easy to say like, okay, well, yeah, just listen to customer feedback. But in reality, it's, it's more tactical that it's, it's removing all of the friction 
between mm-hmm. you and your customers. So in the early days, until you, like your first hundred customers, they should have your cell number. Um, right. When they respond to the email that the system sends, it should go to your email. Um, you should be doing the, all the live chat. Um, you should be listening to phone calls. You should be taking phone calls seven days a week because that's what it's going to take for you to understand, okay, this is what they expect of me. This is, this is what they want. This is where we're letting them down. And you need that as free R&D. And if you're willing to do that, you'll never be at a loss for what decisions you should be taking or what are the three things you should be working on next week because the customer feedback will guide you to, to always know innately uh, uh, what you should be doing. Even to this day, like, you know, 10 years in, several hundred thousand customers, I still do an hour or two of feedback of, of customer support every day. That's awesome. Uh, because it, it, there's, a, there's always a gap that develops between like founder logic and customer logic. And, yeah. and there's like a huge chasm that, that develops between the two. And so for me, I, I close that by literally doing live chat, answering phones, responding to emails. And so that way I'm always like in the trenches with the customer and know where we're letting them down, know what we need to be working on. That's so good. I love that. Now, you, you mentioned it. Hey, we're... We're a multi, multi-million dollar company, which means that we're not only operating in Nashville. We're not even only operating in Tennessee. Uh, we've taken ground and we're in multiple states. So are there any states that you aren't operating in? <laughs> Just talk about how that growth into new states kind of transpired for you guys and what your plan of attack was there. Yeah, we spent three years just in Nashville, just trying to, to figure it out, trying to figure out the, the how do we reliably deliver this service to consumers? Yeah. How do we create a platform where, where vendors can make money, like material income and love yeah. using it? Because if they don't love to use it, then there's no product for the homeowners. And it took a long time to figure out that balance to build the product to, to deliver on that. And, and so we didn't, we knew there was no reason to go into another city until we had that right. After we kind of felt like we had it pretty good, we started moving into other cities around us, you know, Atlanta and then, and then Tampa, Florida was our third market. And we just kind of went city by city. And then after we started getting some steam and and making a little bit of money, we were able to reinvest that into more growth. And and now we're nationwide in the United States. If you live in a city with over 30,000 people, you can order a lawn mowing service uh, through GreenPal. So, but we, we still have a lot, a lot, a a long way to go deep um, in terms of, of uh, creating like really, really, really dense networks in every city in the United States to where, you know, you get bids quicker and the bids are cheaper and you can hire somebody and they come out faster and they do a better job than anybody else you could ever hire. Like making that flywheel better and better and better is what we're working on now. And eventually we'll, we'll move into Canada, UK, Australia, but uh, we have a little ways to go in the United States in terms of creating the network effect in every city. That's awesome. So for you guys, um, what's next? I mean, I I know, once again, you gave us just a little glimpse of, hey, you know, we got other territories and areas we want to be in, but what else is coming down the pipeline? Uh, You're too driven of a guy for me to believe that there's nothing. (laughs) Well, you know, like in terms of five-year plans, I keep it simple. And and for us, we need to be a nine-figure business. We're we're multiple eight-figure business now doing over 20 million a year in revenue. Uh, We want to get to 100 million a year in revenue. And we feel until we get to that point, we're still very much kind of like a niche small business, mm. but we, we want to get to hundred million in revenue. And so we, we know the, the things we got to do to get there and we're executing on those things. It may take us three or four years, but that's, that's what's next. And then, and then after that, I'll reevaluate, you know, maybe, maybe at that point, 
you know, I'm no longer the guy to run the business, you know, cause I've never ran a nine figure business or maybe I'll, I'll evolve and grow with it. But, uh, but life, you know, life in business is like a video game. You just work through one level at a time. You know, you don't worry about Bowser when you're on level two and three. And uh, so maybe we're on level four or five, maybe we're in water world right now. And we're just trying to get through that. And I'm not worried about anything else until we get to a hundred million in revenue. I love it. I love it. Well, Brian, I want to say thank you so much for being on today and talking about your pivotal moments. You know, I think just, you know, how amazing, right? You go and mow one yard and that starts this domino effect. Uh, I mean, a, a multi, you know, a 20 plus million dollar a year uh, business in, still in that field, just in a radically different way than uh, how it started. $20 to 20 million, right? That, that can be our, our uh, slogan there. Yeah, I, I like that. One of my favorite quotes is uh, there are no little things, you know, like, you know, even the little things end up being the big thing. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that. You betcha. Well, I'm excited to continue to follow your story. We'll put, you know, how to get on and uh, hire or use Green Pal to hire your yard mowing out. Uh, but thanks again so much for being on today, Brian, and uh, look forward to following up in the future. Thanks, Phil. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much for listening to Brian's story. One of the things that really stood out to me about his story and what he shared with us is he really thought it was gonna go well and be easy and it wasn't. And then he had to pivot, he had to redo it and he had to try again. So if you're in that phase of your life or in your business, um, you know, do what Brian did, think about it and then execute on it. Have a great day.